Hello, and welcome to today's conversation. We're going to be talking about how nutrition research is done and how it's translated or mistranslated into health headlines. I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. Deirdre Tobias, a scientist who specializes in nutritional epidemiology. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Nutrition at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. In this conversation, we discuss why nutrition advice often appears to flip-flop and what the main types of nutrition studies are. We also cover some of the common scientific lingo, like p-values and confounders. I hope that this episode helps you figure out when to tune in and when to tune out the latest nutrition advice. There's certainly a lot of nonsense out there, but if you know what to look for, there's a lot to be learned as well. Let's dig in. Welcome to Get Real Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chana Davis. This show cuts through the noise to give you science-based insights from real experts so that you can make smart, healthy choices. Welcome to the show, Dr. Tobias. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so happy to join you for this podcast. This is great. I love talking about all things nutrition. Excellent. So can you start us off by giving a little bit of background about your training and what you do now? Sure. So I am by education and training, a nutritional epidemiologist with a focus in obesity and methods. So I received my doctorate over a decade ago now in nutritional epidemiology, as well as epidemiology broadly from the Harvard Chan School of Public Health in Boston and trained with Dr. Frank Hu for my postdoc there as well. And most of my research is trying to investigate risk factors or pathways linking obesity, lifestyle factors with long-term obesity-related chronic diseases. And I'm also really interested in the methods underlying that as well. So how do we come to be able to attribute something as a causal factor for an effect we see years, decades later, which as you may get some appreciation for is quite difficult. And then I'm also academic editor at the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition as another one of my roles. And that pretty much gives the totality of my titles, but I have a lot of other interests in there as well. Well, it sounds like you're the perfect guest for today's topic, which is giving guidance to the public and to non-scientists for navigating nutrition headlines and understanding when to actually take action based on what you read and when to sort of dismiss it. Yeah, I'll try to do my best. It's hard to unpack those sometimes, but we'll get there. So let's just start with a big picture question. We'll probably have to do a lot of layers on this, but what are some of the factors that contribute to the fact that nutrition headlines appear to constantly flip-flop of something, coffee, wine, whatever it is, is amazing for you one day and then horrible for you the next day? What's really going on there? What I think personally is going on there is that the headlines, of course, they always want something that's flashy. So it might be premature to even say one thing is good or bad for you based on the science that the studies or that the headlines are reporting on. So mouse models or animal studies that may have some compound that's found in blackberries that they're researching, that they find some biomarker of an outcome is affected. Suddenly that gets translated into a headline of blackberries cure cancer, where there were no blackberries involved. There was no cancer involved. There weren't even humans involved in the science. So that's one kind of peeve of mine where I see a big gap in where the research was and where the headline ended up. 
But then we do have a number of epidemiologic and clinical trial studies that are, in fact, giving different results for something like eggs and heart disease in humans, where you have actual estimates of eggs, you're actually looking at heart disease, not some surrogate biomarker, and you could get completely different results. So trying to understand what's going on there, where the headlines are actually maybe closer to reporting what's happening in the study, is difficult. And that, I think, comes down to these studies might just be asking completely different questions. And they might be in conducted in populations that are looking at totally opposite ends of a distribution of intake, where it might be really low intake in one population or relatively higher in another, where the intake or the dose is might matter for that outcome. And then also the other foods that are eaten in those cultures or populations can certainly play a role in how those estimates can be interpreted at the end of the day. So that's a long way of saying there really sometimes is just sensationalism behind these headlines and other times it is actually the science itself generating the confusion. So looking beyond that headline, what was the study that's being reported on is always kind of a step one to understanding what the headline's truly trying to reflect or capture, or if it's just for clicks. So one of the things in terms of the nutrition studies that I've come to appreciate is having worked in the drug field, it's very different that you can't often perform the ideal experiment that really, you know, you learn about in high school, the one variable that you change and everything else is identical. And that's how you're going to learn and you have a nice controlled placebo group. So as my understanding, anyways, a lot of the challenges of the nutritional field are that you can't always perform the perfect experiment. So you're having to interpret experiments where you're going to have to sort of be aware of caveats in ways that the result might not reflect the actual question you're trying to answer. Absolutely. I think that's true both for the experimental side of nutrition science as well as the observational kind of epidemiologic evidence. Really understanding what question you want to ask and then does your study design even reflect that hypothesis, I think is something that is underappreciated but greatly impacts how you interpret, particularly nutritional exposures. Because like you said, we don't have this big treatment-naive population that we're then giving double-blind placebo-controlled pill of zero versus a thousand dose to and, and following up. And it's really not that clean, even in the clinical trial setting for nutritional exposures. And I think that's another huge source of some of the variability across results. Mm -hmm. Can you give a little bit of study design 101 and what are the big categories of studies and how do you think about the strengths and limitations of those different designs? Sure, absolutely. I guess we can start with just kind of like a hypothesis and go from there. Say we wanted to know if sugary beverages cause diabetes. And really that question technically is something more along the lines of, should we advise patients who drink a lot of sugary beverages to quit, right? That's the actual public health question we want to know. And if we advise them to quit, will these patients have a lower incidence of diabetes down the road? And from that, we can draw causality that quitting sugary beverages lowers risk of diabetes. So we might imagine a large clinical trial where we have a bunch of patients enrolled who all drink currently three servings of sugary beverages a day, and they're told to either stay on that path and keep consuming that or go to absolute zero and replace it with water, for example. 
And then at the end of several years of follow-up, we count the cases of diabetes in one group, compare that with the cases of diabetes in the other group, and that would essentially give you the answer. So that's kind of this randomized control intervention or behavioral nutritional intervention that we want to conduct for a lot of our hypotheses, but for many reasons is more often than not just not feasible. So adherence is one major barrier, right? So we have this task for all the patients not to just take a pill with no side effects and relatively low commitment. We're asking them to completely change their daily habits. And that is one major barrier to conducting these trials for really long term. And if we want to look at cancer, heart disease, diabetes, we need them to adhere long term because it's going to take several years or if not even decades to develop these outcomes. So what we have more often in nutrition science are these shorter term nutritional interventions where we're looking at surrogate outcomes. So not cases of heart disease or diabetes, but say improvements in fasting glucose or a lowering of bad cholesterol levels over six months or a year. So we're asking them to adhere for a short amount of time that increases the likelihood they'll actually do it. We want that to actually be implemented correctly. So if we're really trying to see an effect, we want them to either continue drinking or to actually quit, right? So that increases the likelihood they'll adhere if we have shorter term, plus it's just more feasible and cost-effective. So we have a large volume for many of the important research questions, these shorter term surrogate trial outcomes. So all the basically limitations of this area of research are the strengths of the epidemiological and vice versa. So in epidemiology, it's not an intervention. We're not asking anybody to do or stick to any one particular diet or behavioral characteristic, but rather just passively recording what they do and observing what happens to them over time. The benefit to this design is that you can obviously follow them for many, many years without being concerned about their adherence, right? So we can regularly check in, say, do you still eat these same things? Report your diet now. Have you had any health outcomes? With this design, it's flexible in that there's no one single exposure we're committing to up front or dose that we have to pick, right? If we design the sugary beverage trial, we have to say, okay, are we going to start at three? Are we going to go down to zero? Are we going to do all sugary beverages, et cetera? With a cohort, you're simply observing and collecting data on what it is that they naturally do out in their free living environment. So with that, one strength is looking across a range of doses, right? So you can look from everyone who consumes none all the way to extreme levels and everything in between. And because we can follow them up for many, many years, often we can get cancer and heart disease and even death. And that lets us look at the health outcomes that we actually wanted to know about in the first place. The biggest limitation with these observational cohorts is that we're not assigning them to their dietary intervention. They're self-selecting it. So if someone drinks zero or five servings a day of sugary beverages, they're choosing that. And that's typically reflective of a number of other behavioral and lifestyle choices that they'll make. So that behavior is correlated with so many other things in their diet, in their lifestyle, and how they interact with their healthcare system their socioeconomic status, you name it, everything. So we have to carefully adjust for those in the analyses. And to do that, we have to have collected that data. So now we have this big task of not just collecting their diet and incident diseases, but everything we think might be relevant to isolating the effects of diet per se if we need to adjust for 
these other features that tend to correlate or travel along with someone who drinks a lot of sugary beverages. So both have challenges. Both don't give us the answer automatically in a single study of what we ultimately want to know. And the totality across all of these designs is what we end up synthesizing to make decisions when it comes to policy and dietary guidelines. So just to recap what you said there and see if I missed anything, the two big categories are leave people alone and just observe them. So observational trials where you can follow a large number of people for many years, but the cause and effect relationship is pretty hard to tease out because there's many factors usually that are different between people who self-select different behaviors. And then in the controlled or interventional trials, you're telling people to change their behavior, but it's generally unrealistic to do that for many, many years. So you're forced to do it for a short term. And in a short term, you can't usually look for the outcome you care about, cancer or cardiovascular disease. You have to look at some other indicator, whether it's cholesterol levels or something like that, that you think is going to predict the ultimate disease in the end. Yeah, I should have just said it that briefly. (laughs) (laughs) I remember just from my cancer research days that this concept that these surrogate biomarkers were like gold. It's so expensive to wait for decades for cancer to develop that, especially for cancer prevention, you'd love to be able to get a read on that early, but those surrogate or proximal biomarkers are never perfect predictors of the actual disease you're trying to look for. Absolutely. I think particularly in the cancer realm, there are some that do well for high-risk patients for specific cancer sites. But for cancer generally, or many of the most prevalent cancers in our population in the U.S., there are no good biomarkers. So it's really difficult to have surrogate trials like this for just overall cancer, like we do for heart disease and diabetes. On the other hand, there's some really good clinical and even research exploratory biomarkers that can be used. Let's just talk a bit more about correlation versus causation and teasing that out because that's just such a common error in the public is to just jump quickly from any correlation to a causal relationship. So how, I know you alluded to this being very complex, but what does it take to establish causality? Yeah, so causality is one of these just theoretical or conceptual frameworks that I think all sciences have really struggled with. And there are a set of criteria called the Bradford Hill criteria that were put forth many years ago. And I think that's still pretty much the basis for if this observation that you have from your experiment checks these boxes, then you can be more sure or certain that what you observed was a cause of the effect. And I mean, really, it just comes down to whether you have a dose response, the temporality did the rain clouds come in before the rain or after, you know, that sort of thing. Like if you just have a single snapshot in time, for example, like there's so many images on social media that have been circulating that I think are kind of cute and illustrating this, but the big dent in like the bench or the concrete with like a kitten laying in it, right? And it's just one snapshot in time. Did the cat cause this big destructive smash into the cement or did the cement was it already there and the cat just like came and snuggled into it right so temporality is what came first and obviously your cause has to come before the effect there are certain criteria in these frameworks where at the end of the day you can 
map out whether causality can be inferred from this observation you have from an experiment. But we don't have those types of very tightly controlled experiments for most of our chronic diseases. So we end up comparing populations who have a high intake of this with a high intake of that and following them up for many years saying, okay, well, this population has a higher intake of this and had a higher incidence of cancer, for example, right? So how would you attribute causality there, I think is extremely difficult because these people are different in many other ways, right? So per se, is it that exposure you're interested in or many of the other things it's correlated with? And it also could just be for chance. Yeah, those are two things I want to expand on that are also powerful to understand and just to have on your radar. This term of confounders that comes up a lot, but maybe is not familiar to a lot of the public. Sure. Confounders are anything that's correlated with your exposure and also with your outcome. That if you measure your exposure and look at its relationship with the outcome, it could be entirely due to that other correlated thing and not the exposure you're interested in. There's a lot of examples. So one is yellow fingernails and lung cancer. So if you measured everybody's fingernail color and their degree of yellowness and then followed them up for lung cancer incidents, you would attribute yellow fingernails as a cause of lung cancer. But it's actually just correlated with the true causal factor of cigarette smoking, which is the true causal exposure. So if you had no other information than yellow fingernails and lung cancer, you would incorrectly attribute causality. It's just a correlation. Another one is red sports cars and accidents. So you have drivers who are more likely to drive red sports cars or more likely to speed or have reckless behavior or be of a certain age group or whatever. And if you just simply look at red sports cars, the crash rate is much higher. Is it the red sports car or is it the personality of the person driving it, right? So again, correlation is not guaranteed causation. And understanding the other things or factors or what we call confounders that could actually be explaining the relationship really take a lot of sort of subject matter expertise, right? But then also really thinking through all these possible other pathways from your exposure of interest to the outcome. And it's a lot harder than it sounds. I think it really requires you understanding your question really well and spending some time thinking, what else is different about these red sports cars besides the color of the car itself? Yes. So in genetics, my field of training, we use the concept of necessary, but not sufficient a lot. And you're having me thinking about that a bit because some of these Bradford Hill criteria you mentioned, like temporal relationship, something has to happen before to be even a candidate for causality, but happening before is not adequate to prove causality. The example that I've been talking about recently is the penny in the COVID vaccine trials. Some kid ate a penny in the clinical trial and that was an adverse event. So did the vaccine cause the kid to eat a penny? You know, probably not. You're not gonna jump to that conclusion, but if the kid got diagnosed with cancer, do you then jump to that conclusion just because A happened before B, did A cause B? So I think it can be useful to think about the things that have to be true if it's causal, but that none of them alone proves causality, separate those necessary but not sufficient. Yeah, that's a great example too. So the, uh, the temporal relationship is a box to check. And the other box you're sort of alluding to is being able to rule out that there wasn't some other factor that happened to coincide, just be along for the ride, essentially. Yeah, exactly. The confounders, particularly in 
observational data are always a concern. And even with interventional exposures, if you feed patients one meal versus the other, foods are very complex and it's difficult to attribute an effect you might see with one food versus the other to one of the individual nutrients. So if you're feeding everyone a hamburger and then your hypothesis was really about the iron or the sodium or the bun, it's almost impossible to distinguish or to tease out the individual nutrients themselves without rerunning the experiment, isolating just that one exposure of interest. And that's another, I think, area that's really important to understand in nutrition science, specific ingredients. But again, it gets very difficult when we're mostly only intervening at the food level or measuring on the food level. So I'm pulling out an overarching theme here, what we talked about earlier, that it's very hard to do the perfect experiment. So really, in terms of practical takeaways, one is to always look for a body of evidence rather than one experiment, because there's usually multiple interpretations to that one experiment. I mean, absolutely. United States Dietary Guidelines Committee meets every five years to comb through all the evidence all over again. So it's this iterative process of such a fast and vast moving body of evidence that is never going to be moved by a single study or one discovery and really takes all these designs to patch together this concept of like, well, what causes what? And what's good for us generally? What should we not be eating? And there's always more questions than answers, but it's a very complicated thing. I don't envy those who have to make these decisions and guidelines for the entire country. Well, because whatever the truth is has to be consistent with all the experiments, right? So you have to find some explanation that actually explains discordant results and maybe understands why those experiments reached the conclusion they did. Yeah, exactly. So consistency is, again, another one of these criteria of causality. And if you have inconsistent results, which we often do, is it because the same experiment was conducted twice and we got different responses? Or were there just apples to oranges differences that you can't even compare these two studies to begin with? And actually what we end up seeing, there was a recent review that looked to see how concordant trial and observational data were. And it found these like 90 topics, not a single one of these topics found that the bodies of evidence were even asking the same question to begin with. So, you know, it's very different to say, do your blood levels of vitamin D relate to your osteoporosis risk versus a supplement intake versus food sources of vitamin D? Like there's so many different ways nutritional exposures can be measured or intervened on. And all of that has implications for how we interpret the results. And you could get completely different findings just because of that. Mm -hmm. Now, the last more technical point I wanted to cover is this concept of chance and p-values, because I know you had a cool paper on that. So can you elaborate on what p-values are and what this really means? So p-values are basically the probability of your hypothesis being disproven. So when you go and conduct a test, and it all stemmed from this like lady tasting tea example, which this woman claimed that she could tell if her milk or cream or whatever was put in before or after the tea. And so they conducted this blinded experiment and eight cups of this versus eight cups with the tea in first or second or whatever it was. I don't even really know all the details. But by chance, she would have identified X amount to be milk first or tea first. And 
if she were to correctly identify more than what would be expected by chance, then that would basically credit the hypothesis of her actually having some ability to detect the order of whether T was put in first or second. So basically, this p-value is the probability that your observed outcome is beyond what we would expect by chance. And that by chance has a lot to do with how many times you run the experiment, if it was a trial, how many patients you had in it. So a lot goes into this statistic. And basically, if we have a percent of patients in our sugary beverage group who have diabetes, say 10% get diagnosed with diabetes in the group that continued sugary beverages, and 3% were diagnosed with diabetes over time in those who switch completely to water. So is that probability of diabetes, 10% in one group, 3% in the other, is that statistically different or is it by chance? And if we had, let's say, 20 people in each group, there'd be some uncertainty over that 10% and that 3%. If we had 1,000 people in each group, that 10% and 3% have a lot more precision around it. So the probability of them being different and that being beyond what we'd expect by chance is driven by basically the sample size in that example. So a big message here is to look out for the sample size. If you're willing to at least dig that level of depth, it is informative to be leery of a sample size of 20 versus 2,000 versus 20,000. It's a very different scenario. I like that T example. I feel like I should try that with my son to just illustrate it because if you did it twice, he could get it right twice just by chance, right? So maybe you'd expect him to get it once right out of twice, but maybe some, sometimes he'll get it right two out of two times. But if you did it 20 times, there's no way he'd get it 20 times right, but maybe he'd get it 11 or 12. Right. So if you did it 20 times, 10 correct would be what you would expect by chance. 11 is that it's not 10, but it's close enough, right? So where do you draw that line of your son having guessed more than by chance? And that's this 5%. So let's start wrapping up into just some of these practical recommendations for making sense of health headlines. So, so far we've got paying attention to the sample size, paying attention to the experimental design, paying attention to whether it's a one-off or whether it's a body of evidence change. What are some other things to pay attention to? Yeah, I think some other red flags in humans and did it actually look at the food or outcome that the headline is talking about. So for a lot of health outcomes, it might just be a surrogate. And how good is that surrogate, right? So we can make mountains out of molehills for a lot of things and call it dementia or breast cancer or whatever outcome might get the biggest click. But is not actually what was studied. And very similarly with food, was it some physiological dose in mice or was it the actual food itself in humans? And that stuff you can usually tell just from looking at the abstract and not really needing that keen of a scientific background either. What are your recommended resources for those that want to understand where the body of evidence sits? Because I think in general, most of the headlines are gonna violate one of those red flags. So where do we go for more robust, reliable understanding? I might be biased here because it's kind of my home turf, but the Harvard Chan School of Public Health Nutrition Department has one of the longest standing nutritional epidemiologic departments and faculty. And they have this website called Nutrition Source. You can just Google it or find it on the Harvard School of Public Health homepage. It gets millions, if not even in the tens of millions of views, and it synthesizes 
data on some of these biggest topics in nutrition and health. It's not going to have something for everything, but it does cover so many of the hot topics like keto, whole grain, everything. And it's not typically just about one study. Or if there is one big study that makes the news, it'll break it down. What did we know before this one study? And what does this one study add to the landscape? So I think it's very, I would say, unbiased in how it presents the data. There's really no objective other than to present the science as it is. That would be a resource, I think, that it's free. There's no subscription or anything like that you have to pay for. So it's available. That would be one I would recommend. Great. You just triggered one more question for me. We talked a bit about red flags, but green flags. So things to look for as signs of credibility, like you just mentioned, putting a finding in context of what we already know. Another one I can think of is being upfront about the limitations of a study. Is there anything that you would add to the green flags? I think if it's just honest to what the methods actually were, and if it was a surrogate marker, if it was in mice, and I like what you said about just the context of what the study adds, I think is huge because it's maybe fun to get so much credit for this one finding, but how does it change the field? Is it flip-flopping or is it fairly consistent and reliable? I think that's another big green light for sure. Well, thank you so much for your time discussing this very complex topic. I hope our listeners are not feeling like they want to give up on the field, but maybe be prepared to stand strong and not sway in the wind with everything they read. Yes, thank you. I hope people don't give up on nutrition science. There's a lot of work to be done, both in methods as well as the questions that the public still have about what we should eat. So I think it'll only improve over time. We'll have better tools to measure and to experiment and to track. All of these questions will just get even more feasible to look at in the end. Well, thank you again for being here. Thank you so much for having me. 